kept thinking as we're uh, singing that of a story that you may know about that, that famous um, voluminous uh, theologian, Karl Barth, and near the end of his life, he was at a conference. I, wanted, I heard it was at, when I was at Princeton, and apparently this happened when he was visiting Princeton, that somebody, a student, raised his hand at the conference and said, you know, how do you sum up your theology, all these volumes? And he said, um, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And wow. Um, this morning we are going to be starting a new series that if I can get to it, will be helpful. Let me start this over again and uh, see if I can find it. And um, there it is. So we are going to be starting a new series this morning on answering the hard questions of faith. And it's, it's part of a longer plan of three series that we're going to be in, in really the next season of our church. And I want to let you know up front that this series, these series are structured and influenced by a similar series by Tim Keller, but the content of the messages is my own. This is the first series that will take us through February, and it is, honestly, it's, it's part of equipping us to have conversations about God with our friends and our families and our neighbors. And we've talked about some of the tools that we can use to have these conversations. Do you remember those? Including the, the three circles of, of knowing God's plan, that, that there is a way things should be, of the second circle being the brokenness of our world that has, has come into this world through sin, but then the third circle, and of God's answer of redemption in Jesus by his cross and resurrection, and we, and we seek a new life in God's plan, even now through faith. And, and that's a great way to, to share the heart of the good news with anyone. But inevitably, you get in a conversation, there's going to be some hard questions people may ask. Often, resistance to the gospel is not coming from our head. Often, it's coming from our heart. And like I mentioned last week, sometimes it's simply an inability to trust or only wanting to trust ourselves. But often in the world, people do have hard questions of faith. And so we're going to take a, a quick look at some of the hardest questions. Now, the time we have in a sermon is by no means adequate to answer any of these deep questions that we're going to be looking at in the next few weeks. But I hope it can be a start. And also, I hope it can give us some confidence that there are answers and, and postures to take. When, when we have the questions or when we meet those questions from others. So these questions by no means disqualify our faith. Actually, more often than not, facing these hard questions of faith has, has strengthened me in my faith, helping me see that, that Christianity has better answers to these questions than any skepticism or any other faiths. 
And, and seeking answers to these questions has deepened my faith's confidence and understanding and deepened my relationship with God. And that's my hope for all of us as we just open the door to these things. But a couple of things I want to say as we crack open the door to these questions, questions that may frighten you. First of all, be humble. Be humble in asking and facing any of these questions. This is not a debate to win. Always in, in, in facing these questions, be sensitive to where these questions are coming from in people and answer so as to, to minister lovingly to those needs. The character of faith with which you answer is more important in most settings than being right. Also, just we don't need to be afraid of the questions. Not that we'll have the answers for everyone or, or even for ourselves. Always be honest and unafraid. Be ready to respond at any point in the conversation with saying, I don't know. And let me search and, and think on that. And, and even, you know, would you investigate those questions with me? Our confidence and our security and our faith is not that we will win debates with our great answers. Our security is in Christ, not in our intellectual acumen. I'm confident that seeking answers to the questions you have or anyone presents to you will draw you closer to Christ. Finally, Scripture will help us. Scripture's going to help us. We'll ground all of our responses to these questions in Scripture. And we'll start this morning by reading 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Listen now to the Word of God. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and, over, and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love is not, does not know God because God is love. 
In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, guide us as we think about your word and the hard questions of faith. Guide my words, guide all of our hearts and minds as we just step our toe into some real challenging places. Guide us by your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Exclusivity. Exclusivism. It's, it's a prevalent belief today that religious ideology has divided us and is the primary source of created conflict. It is true that religion does have a tendency to divide people. It, it, it absolutely can lead to oppression and violence. It has a long history of that in wars of the past all the way till today. And I, and I think this is a growing impression of Christianity in our current environment. Tim Keller points out two common current strategies to, to combat the, the divisiveness of religion in our world. The first is, is hoping that religion is just going to weaken. It's just going to go away. And that, that carries with it an evolutionary view of religion, that, that a belief that religion is a crutch that we've needed in history, but that we don't need it anymore. Rather, as enlightened people, we've, we've gotten past religion. But after centuries of, of that kind of expectation, it should be clear that religion is not going anywhere. It's not going to die out. The more you try to stamp it out, as a matter of fact, the, the stronger it gets. This passage speaks of test the spirits. It's, it's not saying to test the prophets or the teachers because because it's recognizing that there is a real spiritual realm influencing things, and denying that and hoping that religion is, is just going to go away is just simply not going to work. People more and more are, are coming to understand all humans worship something, and it's an inevitable part of human nature whether it is at the altar of secularism or any myriad of gods, we are called to discern. And it's so easy to end up worshiping something that would enslave us rather than free us, turn us to hatred or self-righteousness rather than love and grace. So test the Spirit. The second strategy of diminishing the influence of religion on people is really just simply to try to confine religion to, to the private realm. One way of doing that is to agree 
that all religious beliefs are equally valid paths to God. It's a funny thing. The funny thing is that assumes a, a, a grasp of all truth to be able to make that assertion. Keller says, when you say no one has a superior take on spiritual, spiritual reality, that is a take on spiritual reality. It, it means you think you know more than anyone else. It's the most bold religious proclamation that you could make. We diminish religion by, by saying it's merely meant to give us personal strength, not to inform public discourse or participation. It's not meant to affect our public life. Richard Rorty is, a, a fam- is famous for his philosophy of pragmatism. And he just wants, he just asks that we work together to figure out what works best in our life together. What's the best way to educate, the best way to deal with poverty and, and not ask religious questions? Because that's where things get divisive. But ultimately, that's just simply impractical. Think about what religion is. Keller says it this way, what's religion? Religion is a set of answers to the big questions. Why are we here? What is right and wrong for human beings to be doing? What's wrong with the human race? And... and and what will fix it? How do we decide right and wrong? What should we be spending most of our time doing? What are the most important things to be doing? Nobody can operate in life without a set of answers to those questions. Those answers are at least implicitly religious. The real question is which set of exclusive beliefs produces the most peace-loving, reconciling, and inclusive behavior. That's what we want to know. That, that question, that last one, is, is more relevant than ever in a world that is increasingly fractured, that has put us, as I've mentioned, mentioned recently, moving from an age of anxiety to an age of anger. What beliefs would be peace-loving, reconciling, and producing the most inclusive behavior? That is where the gospel is unique. Try to think about what are the very things that will be agents of reconciliation and peace in this world. I, I think the, m- most of us would start with wanting to look at commonalities. What are the things that we can agree upon in our different beliefs? And, and we can find, typically we can find many things. But what is unique about the Christian faith makes it especially suited for living in a pluralistic world. Let's look at the passage and, and look at three things that are unique about Christianity and makes it especially helpful for living in a pluralistic world. We read, we read in the passage this morning in verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. The first thing to notice from this passage is that the, is the 
origin of Jesus' salvation. To say that Jesus has come and not that Jesus was born is an implicit claim that God has come in Jesus. What's implicit here is made explicit elsewhere in 1 John and the other, other Johannine scriptures. And this is unique. Other religions have human leaders who may have maybe hear from God or, or point to God. Our faith claims to have a leader that is both human and God. Our faith claims to have a leader who, this is a huge statement about God. The creator is absolutely invested in his creation by sending his son, by sending his self. That's the origin, the, the source of our salvation. God come to us, not us trying to go to God. The second thing to notice is the purpose of Jesus' salvation. The passage says that Jesus has come in the flesh. Most other religions see the, the purpose of salvation to liberate us from the flesh. Christianity sees the transformation of the flesh, of the material world, as the purpose of salvation. Ultimately, by Jesus coming into the flesh, salvation means to get rid of death and disease, poverty, injustice, all brokenness and tears. All the brokenness of this world is not simply run from to some other spiritual realm. Rather, it is transformed in salvation to, to just what it was always meant to be in creation. Keller quotes Vinoth Ramakandra saying, So our salvation lies not in an escape from this world, but in the transformation of the world. You will not find hope for the world in any religious systems or philosophies of humankind. The biblical vision is unique. That is why when some say that there is salvation in other faiths, I ask them, what salvation are you talking about? The ultimate and final picture of salvation in Christianity is resurrection. Where all this ends up in new bodies, and a new heaven, and a new earth. Finally, the passage, in this passage, we see the method of Jesus' salvation. And this is, this is where it really stands out. Virtually all other religions tell us of behaviors and, and the production that we must have to be saved. Remember, it's about us going to God. If you're, not, if you're good enough and do it well enough, God will bless you and save you. Christianity is wholly different. Listen to the passage. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
Listen to the same passage in the message translation. This is the kind of love we're talking about. Not that we once upon a time loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to clear away our sins and the damage we've done to our relationship with God. I like all that last phrase just to sum up what propitiation means because, I mean, who knows that? I love a story that is recounted by Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, about C.S. Lewis. I might have told this story before. During a British conference, Yancey writes, a, a British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world debated what, if any, belief was unique to Christian faith. And they began eliminating possibilities. Incarnation, other religions had different versions of God appearing in human form. Resurrection, again, other religions had accounts of the return from death. And the debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room. What's the rumpus about? He asked, and he heard in reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. And Lewis responded, oh, that's easy. It's grace. After some discussion, the conferees had to agree. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist eightfold path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant and the Muslim code of law, each of these offers a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. What is unique about Christianity is grace. Verse 10, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Jesus is not primarily a teacher or an example to tell us how to live. He is God. He is God and he is a savior who lived as we ought, died as we should have, and pays as we would have. The method of salvation in Christianity is grace. Our, our core beliefs that are unique to Christianity are, are reflected in how we live and how we relate to others. And these distinctives give our life a, a new character in the world. The method of salvation is grace. If, if, sal if salvation is performance-based, then you have to be superior to others. That, that's the way of the world. Self-righteousness or self-loathing leads to superiority or oppression. And that that can come from other religions and honestly, in an even more devastating way, from secularism. But our salvation is faith-based. No expectation that others who do not share this faith are any less moral 
or valuable to God or as important as we are. There's nothing better about us than anyone else. Our salvation comes through admitting we're not better than anyone else. We are sinners who need grace. Think of Paul and how he saw himself, the chief of all sinners. I think that's how we all understand ourselves. It's built into our system and the heart of our faith that you are humble before others, even even people who don't agree with you. Do, Do you see how much that stands out in our world? The purpose of salvation is the resurrection. God values the material world to to transform it, and we will value it as well and work to make it a good world. In the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah spoke to the people of Israel who were going to go live in exile in Babylon for 70 years, and he called them to go to Babylon and serve the society and seek its peace, shalom. Jesus likewise calls us to be salt and light of the gospel in the world. And finally, remember the origin of salvation. Jesus is God. You think that that would be the most exclusionary statement, exclusionary claim of Christianity think about it. Christianity came to a Greek and Roman culture where there was freedom for each to follow their own gods, not totally unlike our world today. The irony is that that just seemed to fracture society all the more. Christianity's claim is that Jesus is Lord of all, and it it seems like that would be the most exclusive of claims of a god. But historically, it has led to the most inclusive of societies and communities up to that time. In the end, in the end, everyone has exclusive beliefs. If we're going to live together in this smaller and smaller world, a key question is which beliefs lead to the most inclusiveness and tolerance Keller writes, I submit this. Take moralistic religion into the center of your life and you will feel superior to the secularists. Take secularism into the center of your life and you'll feel superior to all those stupid religious people. Take the gospel into the center of your life and you will be humbled before people even people who don't believe what you believe. While the beliefs of Christianity absolutely are exclusive, so is every other belief. And and to say otherwise is itself unaware of its own exclusiveness. But in Christianity, there is care for others, valuing of all, and the offer of hope to everyone, not based on performance or background, not based on who we are, but on who God is and what He's done for us 
in Jesus. We simply receive the grace of God, which has come to us and is offered to all. Let's pray. Lord, it is such a challenge to stand up for faith. But Lord, every challenge to faith is itself a a claim of faith. And so God, help us to face the challenges in trust in in the content of our faith that we proclaim, that Jesus is Lord of all and has saved us by dying for us on the cross, not for what we've done or who we are, but simply in love for us, a love for all and for me. God, help me live in that faith in this wide and crazy world and live in such a way that exhibits the faith I proclaim. That I, I, <laughs> it's not about me. It's about the goodness and love of God that's offered to me and to all. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge to live in this world as yours. And Lord, we don't understand much but we see your grace and stand amazed. Thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.